Hello there, United States history students. This is your recorded slideshow lecture about the era of Western expansionism. I am your teacher, Mr. Endress. Let's begin. Hey, as you take a look at the dates that I identified for this particular era, I start with 1877, since that was the end of our last unit on Reconstruction, and I'll end in the year 1893, when a very important paper was published. And I want to start in with 1877 because I want to begin with a nice transition from Reconstruction and the failure of Reconstruction during that year when the Compromise of 1877 occurred to the continual American expansion westward. Westward expansionism had been going on, well, arguably, since the British Americans were British colonies, but the Civil War slowed down significantly that Western expansionism because Americans were too busy killing themselves during the Civil War. And then after 1865, Western expansionism kicked up again. And a great example of that is the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in the year 1869. But I'm going to begin in the year 1877 with the failure of Reconstruction after the Compromise of 1877. You should clearly remember that we have a 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which eliminates slavery, a 14th Amendment, which provides equality for all people under the law, and a 15th Amendment, which protects the rights of all people to vote, or rather, let me rephrase that, 15th Amendment says you can't stop somebody from voting based upon their race. So that sounds great. It sounds like the Civil War was won, and we're now going to provide freedom and equality to the freed slaves. But of course, in 1877, with the Compromise of 1877 and the troops, the American troops being removed from the South, those three amendments were essentially ignored. And you had sharecropping, which was a, effectively a new form of slavery for African Americans in the South, and the Jim Crow laws, which were designed to segregate and subjugate African Americans in the South. They had various ways of keeping African Americans from voting, such as poll taxes, such as very difficult literacy tests. And then there was also the completely absurd grandfather clause, which said that, hey, if your grandfather couldn't vote, now you can't vote when everybody knows your grandfather was a slave, so that way you can't vote. These were all local, whimsical laws designed simply to stop blacks from voting and to maintain the Jim Crow system. So you had to think if you're an African-American in the South now, you know what, what can you do? Uh, is, is there, are there any other options than just simply to submit to the new Jim Crow system of the South? Well, some people decided to fight and other people decided to run away. And the first people I would like to talk about are those that decided to fight this particular system. The first individual I would like to talk about is an amazing woman. She was from Mississippi, I believe, originally. When she was growing up, there were four of her friends who were lynched. A lynching is a hanging, so it is a violent murder that is not done with the due process of the law, but is rather a vigilante act. So in other words, the KKK kills you for whatever whimsical reason the KKK wants to kill you for, or any other white racist or racist organization. This was a horribly traumatic event for Ida B. Wells, and she decides to dedicate her life to fighting it. So how does she choose to fight it? She moves north to New York City, and she becomes an investigative journalist. As she says in her own words, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. In other words, in order for there to be justice, 
the awful injustice of our country must be exposed. Ida B. Wells was an, was an investigative journalist. We will learn about several very significant investigative journalists throughout the course of American history. This relates to our First Amendment right, the right to free speech. The press plays an extraordinarily important role in our democracy. Journalists, it is said, write the first draft of history. When events happen, they are the first one to capture them and to begin to process their significance. What investigative journalists do is they seek out crimes that are not being reported, or if not outright crimes, other shady or bad things that are going on. And they write about these things, they expose these things to the public. And what we'll find throughout American history is sometimes something good will really come out of this type of investigative journalism. There might be a legislative response. Bad things are going on. The investigative journalists do the very dangerous work of seeking out sources that can report honestly and faithfully to what is going on, corroborating those sources with other evidence, and then daringly publishing what, what they have found. When their books are published, usually they are the recipients of significant blowback. There are a lot of people that do not like them for having published this, their works, and sometimes their own lives are in danger because of what they revealed. But once they get the word out, then it stirs up a bunch of emotions in the American public. And sometimes there's a legis legislative response. If something is so bad and it's reported faithfully on and the American public find out about it, they usually want their legislatures to do something to make that bad thing illegal and to stop it. So we'll talk about many, well, several important investigative journalists throughout American history. And Ida B. Wells is the first one that I talk about. She published her book in New York. It was called Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. Now, when this book was published and many people read it, there was no massive federal legislation to put an end to lynch lynching, sadly. This, this book was published in the 1890s, so not long after the end of the Reconstruction era, and there had simply developed a callous disregard for many African-Americans in the South. But even though the federal government didn't respond, there were other movements to provide African-Americans with justice. Ida B. Wells was one of the founders of this organization, the NAACP, which stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The NAACP is still around today. The goal and purpose of the NAACP was to provide, and is to provide, because it's still around today, legal representation for African Americans. So this image that you see here of the NAACP, or members of the NAACP, these individuals would be mostly lawyers, financial benefactors, and other individuals who sought to identify where African Americans were having their civil liberties violated and then to provide those African Americans 
with legal representation, usually free legal representation. So, okay, the law protects our freedom. The 14th Amendment should provide equality for all people. Clearly, Jim Crow laws in the South are a violation of the 14th Amendment. Lynching and terrorism and harassment like the KKK would engage in, these are also obviously illegal activities. Who is going to protect the African Americans? That's why Ida B. Wells and, a hand, and several others, one of which we'll meet here soon, formed the NAACP. Here come the lawyers to protect your rights. But let's take a moment to think about this. You go to the Deep South, like a state like South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, where the KKK is very powerful. Would you want to be a lawyer representing an African-American who is being terrorized by the KKK? That would put you in the crosshairs of the KKK. It would make your life very dangerous. But you know what? There were lawyers who were willing to do that, and we'll learn their story as we go through the whole course of United States history. The NAACP is a very important organization, a legal organization that you need to know. As I said a couple times already, NAACP is still around today. All right. All right. So here's another individual that, whose story you need to know. His name was Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington, later in his life, wrote his autobiography. It was called Up From Slavery, and that should tell us a little bit about where he came from. Booker T. Washington was born into slavery after the Civil War when he was free. This man taught himself how to read and write. He became an educator, and he eventually took over the administration of this very famous educational institute in Alabama the Tuskegee Institute. Booker T. Washington was not technically the founder of Tuskegee, but you can pretty much consider him to be the founder of Tuskegee because he established it as one of the most important African-American educational facilities in the United States of America, and it's in the Deep South. It's in Alabama. Now, Booker T. Washington has one goal for the African-Americans that come to Tuskegee. He would like to empower them. And for him, what empowerment means is having money and a job and a skill to keep your job. That is what he thinks is empowerment. And I think that's consistent with what most people think empowers you in society. Having a particular skill that can get you a job, that can make you money. That provides you with stability for your life. And that is his mindset. So as we take a look at the images from inside the Tuskegee Institute in the late 19th century. Hey, and by the way, Tuskegee Institute is still around today, but this is back in the 19th century. Here's how individuals, African-American students, were educated in Tuskegee back then in the late 19th century. Take a look at this image right here. They're doing some pretty traditional educational stuff, reading and writing. Obviously, you need to know how to read and write so that you can read and understand contracts. You need to know some basic mathematics to do any type of finance. So these are foundational life skills which will help the African Americans to hopefully find good jobs and economic stability in their lives. But the Tuskegee Institute also believed that you need to develop manual skills. Manual skills. Skills that involve using your hands. 
skills like carpentry, other forms of woodworking, working with metal, building, plumbing, electricity, which is coming around at this time. Using your hands to build things, using your hands to fix things. These skills were considered vital in the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And again, once again, the goal for, for African Americans in Booker T. Washington's mind with the Tuskegee Institute is you can come to this school, you can get an education, you learn how to read, write, you develop the skills that will provide you with a job so that you can have economic security for yourself and your family for the future. That is empowerment. All right, so take a moment to think about that. And now let's consider the Tuskegee Institute within the greater context of Alabama and the Deep South and the South as a whole during the post-Reconstruction era where Jim Crow laws dominate. Remember that Jim Crow laws segregate and subjugate African Americans? And African Americans live in the constant fear of the Ku Klux Klan and other ter terrorist organizations designed to keep them in their place. Along comes Booker T. Washington. He wants to empower African Americans. Now, what he is teaching African Americans in the Tuskegee Institute are skills that they will that will enable them to get jobs under the Jim Crow system. As an African-American male, you probably were only allowed to get a job in which you use your hands, manual labor. What about becoming a doctor or a lawyer or going into finance? Nuh-uh, this was not allowed. So what we find Booker T doing is trying to empower African-Americans as much as possible within the Jim Crow system of the South. Now, what do you think about that personally? Because Booker T. Washington is a very controversial individual in American history. In the year 1895, Booker T. Washington had emerged as the most famous African American at the man at the time. He was a celebrity. He was born into slavery. He taught himself how to read and write. He got into education. He essentially created his own university. And in Atlanta, Georgia, in the year 1895, he met in private with several powerful white leaders from the South to essentially discuss African-American empowerment. The white leaders that were meeting with Booker T. Booker T. Washington wanted to make sure that he was not encouraging any type of social revolution. And Booker T. Washington agreed that he would never do anything to encourage the overthrow of the Jim Crow system. The Atlanta Compromise of 1895 that Booker T. Washington agreed to was this. He agreed that he would push for an agenda in which African Americans will accept segregation and accept the Jim Crow laws of the South that they would also stay out of politics. They're not going to vote. They're not going to be politicians. In exchange for, they will have the right to an education, to due process. That means they have a right to trial by jury if they're accused of something. And, very importantly for him, that African Americans have a right to skilled work opportunities. 
And that is Booker T. Washington. So what do you think? Did he empower African Americans or did he sell them out by agreeing, essentially, that they are not equal citizens? Was he both? To what degree do you think he was good? To what degree do you think he was bad? Or maybe not bad, but a sellout. Again, hopefully you can see how Booker T. Washington today is considered to be a highly controversial figure in American history. All right. And whenever historians and history teachers really talk about Booker T. Washington, they always place him in contrast to this individual, W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois is the opposite of Booker T. Washington. He's not from the South. He was not born into slavery. He was born a free man in the North. He will be the very first African-American to graduate from Harvard University. Smart guy, I think we can all agree. Will spend most of his life living and working in Harlem, New York. And his job is a, being a lawyer. He is a lawyer. Lawyers fight for rights. So this makes him the opposite of Booker T. Washington. He wants to fight for the equality of African Americans. Also, think of who he is and what he does for a job, being a lawyer. The skills that he has, and he's very good at, by the way, would never be taught in the Tuskegee Institute of the South. W.E.B. Du Bois himself represents the potential of all African Americans. So here's what he says, and I quote W.E.B. Du Bois, We refuse to surrender the leadership of this race to cowards. W.E.B. Du Bois says that African Americans are equal to whites, but... Not everybody is equal in any group of people. He says it doesn't matter if you're talking about whites or blacks. Any group of people is led by the most daring and talented top 10%. I personally don't know where he get the, got the 10% from, but this probably was just a general abstract impression of how W.E.B. Du Bois looked at whites and blacks. He said that of all of them in each group, you've got your top 10%, your top 10%. And he called this top 10% the talented 10th. And he said it's that group of people who will lead the entire race. So not everybody can become a great artist, musician, lawyer, politician, but everybody should have the opportunity to shoot for that. And it will be the top 10%, or as he calls them, the talented 10th, who will lead and inspire the rest. Doesn't take too much imagination to figure out what W.E.B. Du Bois thought about Booker T. Washington. For the most part, W.E.B. Du Bois thought that Booker T. Washington was just a sellout. And history teachers like me are want to compare and contrast Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. They're both extraordinarily important African-American leaders in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. But they both have different backgrounds and they both achieve different things in life in different sort of arenas. Uh, Booker T. Washington in education, W.E.B. Du Bois in, in law. They both, they both lived in different places. You know, Booker T. Washington geographically is a southerner. Du Bois is a northerner. And most importantly, they both have different attitudes towards how African Americans should deal with the white power establishment. Booker T. Washington and sitting down with powerful white leaders in Atlanta, Georgia in the middle of the 1890s 
was willing to cooperate, to negotiate, and to compromise. And W.E.B. Du Bois was definitely not of that attitude. You are, as an African-American, an American citizen, you have rights. You have a right to do absolutely anything that, uh, that a white person does. You also have a right to be free from fear and living in terrorism or living under terrorism, just like a white person. So you should fight, fight for justice. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a very famous book called The Souls of Black Folk. And this book, which is still very popular, to, uh, uh, still a very popular book today, it is in part a book of African-American history. And what I find really cool about this book is each chapter begins with a phrase of music from African-American history. So W.E.B. Du Bois was a lawyer. Would you like to guess what legal organization that he helped to found? If you could think of the NAACP, you would be absolutely correct. So there were six founding members of the NAACP, four of which were white. One of those white people was a woman, and the other two were African-Americans. And you should know who those African-Americans were. W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells. The NAACP, an important organization. We'll hear more about it later. This man who appears on the screen right now, if you are able to, look at him. There he is. Do you see him? His name was Homer Plessy. Now, as you look at Homer Plessy here, I just want you to take a moment and look at the color of his skin. According to you, is this a white man or a black man? And after you make that superficial judgment, here's this story about Homer Plessy. In the early 1890s in Louisiana, he got on a train. He had purchased a first-class ticket on this train, so he got to sit in the nice seat, but he was kicked off the train. He was told he wasn't allowed to sit in those first-class seats because he was a black man. So you might be taken aback by that if you looked at him and saw a white man, as I do. But the people that kicked him off knew his family heritage. Homer Plessy was one-eighth African-American. There was a confrontation that resulted from the employees of the railroad company trying to kick him out of first class, and it resulted in a lawsuit that worked its way up to the Supreme Court. And this Supreme Court case is one of the most famous Supreme Court cases in American history. The Plessy versus Ferguson 1896 case, it determined... The Supreme Court determined that separate but equal is constitutional. In other words, if there are facilities for whites and for facilities for blacks, then that is not in violation of the 14th Amendment. Separate but equal is legal. Now, after hearing the story and you're thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because... Okay, even if he is an African-American guy and he's like, and he was kicked out of a, a particular section, he wasn't kicked out of the section because it was a whites-only section. It was a first-class section. He was asked to go to the, you know, the not-so-nice seats. Well, you'd be right. But the Supreme Court didn't care, or at least not the majority of the Supreme Court cared. There wasn't a, a dissenting opinion. That dissenting opinion was expressed by the Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan, 
who in his statement declared, everybody knows that this is about racism. Now, that's my rephrasing of it, but here's something that he actually did say. There is no caste here. Our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. But he was the minority, not the majority of the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in 1896 established this segregation, or rather confirmed that the segregation was legal. Separate but equal, and the Plessy versus Ferguson case will hold until the year 1954. And in the night and then and, and in nineteen fifty-four, the Supreme Court will be presented with some new and very interesting evidence about how separate is never equal. All right, so who have we learned about so far? We've learned about Ida B. Wells, we've learned about Booker T. Washington, we've learned about W. E. B. Du Bois, and we've learned about the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court case of 1896. And all of these represent an example of attempting to fight against the Jim Crow system of the South. But let me return to my original question from the beginning of this lecture. What would you do if you were an African-American in the South living under the Jim Crow system and you didn't want to submit? Would you fight or would you flee? Were there any Africans that attempted to run away? Yes. Yes, there were. Although it was extraordinarily difficult. I mean, this is the 19th century. You're not just going to get in your car and drive. How are you going to get out? Where are you going to get the money to do that? Could you just walk? Could you do that safely? Where are you going to eat, sleep, go to the bathroom if you try to do that? Well, almost immediately after the Great Compromise of 1877 and the end of Reconstruction, there was a movement of African Americans to get out of the South and go west to Kansas. Here's an advertisement saying, here you go, African-Americans. And hey, by the way, if you can check out this advertisement, it identifies African-Americans as colored people. Throughout most of the period of time from the Reconstruction era through the 1950s, most African-Americans were referred to as colored. And that, name, uh, that term tends to pop up a lot. So here's this advertisement saying, if you are an African-American, if you are a colored person, you can go to Kansas, we'll get you there for $5. If you had the five bucks to do this, or if you had the means otherwise to somehow make it to Kansas successfully, you were called an exoduster. Exodusters were African-Americans who fled the deep south for Kansas, and specifically the town of Nicodemus, Kansas, where you could be free as a farmer, or potentially to establish a, building, a, a, a business in downtown Nicodemus, Kansas. That term exoduster is a combination of exodus, which refers to the book of Exodus in the Bible, where oppressed Jews living under the tyranny of the Egyptian pharaoh fled Egypt to go to their homeland of Israel, and dust, as in the soil of the hard-to-farm Central Plains areas of Kansas, the Exodusters. The Exodusters were led by this individual. His name was Pap Singleton. Pap Singleton served the role of the Moses of this particular Exodus movement. There's plenty of land to be had in Kansas. Kansas, prior to the Civil War, developed the reputation of being an anti-slave state. 
And if you've ever heard of the mascot, the Kansas Jayhawk, a Jayhawk is actually an early 19th century term for an individual who kills slave owners. So that's actually a good anti-racist mascot. It's also kind of a violent one, but I'm off topic now. Now, did this work? Well, yes and no. Once the movement was started, the wealthy landowners in the South realized that their cheap labor was disappearing. So rather quickly, militias were set up along the Mississippi River to stop African Americans from fleeing the Deep South to the West, specifically to Kansas. So the Exoduster movement was fairly short-lived. But for us, United States history students, we are going to shift the scene of our action from the Deep South in the United States to the West. And we're going to learn now about the Wild West in the 19th century. So there's a lot of mythology that surrounds the Wild West. It's very much part of the American story. Cowboys and their 10-gallon hats and their Colt 45 revolvers. There's this image of the Wild West of individuals, mostly men, from the United States traveling westward into an area that was not yet part of the United States. There's no government, there's no law, and therefore there's absolute freedom. There were Native Americans, there were bandits, there were miners, there were traders, there were trappers, there were outlaws who got in trouble in the United States and fled westward to get away from the law. And so you had this melting pot of individuals all struggling for survival and occasionally struggling to get along with each other. And that's the myth and the excitement of the Wild West and really how it plays into the American story of freedom and all different sorts of people from all different sorts of backgrounds struggling to both survive and get along. I mean, it's very much part of the American story. And this has been celebrated in television and movies and in song. And there is truth to this, but it's also a limited truth. There is another, or at least there's more to this, that historians want to bring into telling the story of the West. And what I'm going to endeavor to do is to do my very best to give you an honest portrayal of what the West was like in the late 19th century. Another term that comes out of this era or at least has been applied to this era that is very much part of the myth of the West is this concept of rugged individualism. And this concept of rugged individualism certainly plays into the American identity today that you can survive no matter what if you are tough enough and strong enough as an individual that you don't need to be dependent upon anybody else. If you have the fortitude, if you have the gumption, and if you have the in, inner and outer strength, then you can survive. And this certainly comes out of the stories of the Wild West. Okay, so let's, take a, let, let's evaluate to what extent all of this was true in the West in, in the late 19th century. All right, so after the Civil War, who went into the West? The West being identified as the area primarily in between Missouri and California. You can think of this as mostly the Plains and Rocky Mountain region, uh, the deserts of the Southwest as well. Who is in there? 
Well, first of all, Native Americans. Native American tribes had been in this area for at least 13,000 years. There were many tribes, many languages, a variety of different cultures. The Native Americans were there. Now, even before the advent of the two Americans, Lewis and Clark, and their expedition in 1803, there were other white people in this area. Most of them were traders and trappers. So these would be white people that interacted with the Native Americans. And they came from a wide variety of backgrounds. Uh, there were French and British and some American. But then after Lewis and Clark, there were a wide variety of traders and trappers that went into the West. Uh, beaver trappers, for example, who would go into uh, Colorado or the area that we call Colorado today to trap beavers and then bring them back to St. Louis and sell them at a significant price. In the early 19th century, this would have been very dangerous and lonely work, but it also would have paid off significantly. There was always this financial motivation for individuals and groups of people to go out west. And that becomes a very important theme in the late 19th century as well. Also, it's always worth remembering that in terms of the white European colonial powers in the American West, Spain has always played a significant role. And the Spanish influence of what we identify today as the American Southwest long predates the American influence on the American Southwest. So think of this. The first English, the first permanent English settlement in North America was Jamestown in the current state of Virginia. And that was established in 1607. 1607. That was a long time ago. Now, when those first settlers showed up in Jamestown, Spaniards had already settled today what is New Mexico by 50 years. So you, you have these Spanish settlements in the American Southwest that go back to the middle of the 16th century. So as we think, as many people think of the American Western expansionism, they think of you know, white people starting off on the coast, on the Atlantic coast, and you have Native Americans and the rest of the Americas, and then here come the white people, and they spread eastward from westward until they essentially create the United States of America from sea to shining sea. And there are various conflicts with the Native Americans in, a, in the process. Well, do understand that there were other, quote-unquote, white people that are there in the American Southwest. Their heritage is, Span is Spanish, and then later on when Mexico breaks free from, uh, from Spain in the 19th century, you know, there are Mexicans that are there. And these settlements go back a long, long way. And that's also important to remember as we tell the story of the American Southwest. Okay, so what have we got as we start off the late 19th century? We've got a lot of uh, Mexican settlements in the American Southwest, even though increasingly these are being identified as American territories. You've got a wide variety of Native American tribes. You've got individual uh, white Americans who have come westward for mostly financial purposes. They're either seeking you know, trading or trapping or something like that. But then when you get to the middle of the 19th century, gold is discovered in California. And then you have the 49er gold rush. And that leads us into the late 19th century. Americans are increasingly looking at the West 
and the vast lands of the West as being filled with value, valuable minerals like gold, copper, silver, and looking for the next big strike, the next big gold strike, silver strike, copper strike, that more than anything else in the late 19th century is what is going to draw many Americans west of the Mississippi out into the Wild West. So as we think of the late 19th century, Western expansionism of Americans going out west, it's these individuals that you see pictured here that we need to think of as doing most of the settling. Now, these guys weren't the only guys, of course. There were farmers. Increasingly, there would become cattle ranchers. But the miners were the big drive. Now, let's think about who these miners would have been. Who do you think the miners were? If you were living in Columbus, Ohio in the late 19th century and you had a home, a job, a family, are you going to be going out west to search for gold like this individual pictured here trying to pan gold out of a stream? And if you actually found gold, then you'd have to report that there was gold discovered here and stake your claim, allow other people to stake your claim, hope in the process of all this nobody shoots you dead to steal your gold. No, of course not. You would never leave a life of security to go and do something so risky and so dangerous. And very few of the miners actually got rich. It was really a matter of luck if you were one of the first miners on the first river to happen to discover gold or silver. But there were a handful of them. And of those handful of individuals who just happened to strike it rich, they become they became these this inspiration for many, many others to come over. And so here's what would happen. And here's where we have rugged individualism and then something else going on in the development of the American West. So there's the search for gold, for silver, for copper, and then somebody's going to hit it. And it's not going to be, I mean, chances are it's going to be somebody who is just an ordinary American, poor, is out there on their own, and they find it, they strike it, they hit it, and they get rich. Now, once this gets reported that in this particular river, in this particular area, there is gold, here come a whole bunch of people. And when a whole bunch of people show up, towns grow up. You're going to have hotels, grocery stores, saloons, brothels, banks, and saloons and saloons and saloons. All these for the men that are coming over there to try to strike it big. And the thing is, very few of them are actually going to strike it big. But towns have developed. Some towns that developed in this way, Deadwood, South Dakota, Leadville, Colorado, Tombstone, Arizona, and then later on during the Yukon Gold Rush in Alaska, Seattle, Washington. In order to get to Alaska, you most likely had to go through Seattle, Washington. And so these towns, in order to survive, kept promoting the stories of all these people, which was actually just a handful of people striking it rich, so that those towns and the businesses of those, of those towns could continue to grow. So hopefully you can see what's going on here. Yes, there is rugged individualism. Yes, there are individuals who are striking it rich, but they are a minority. But a whole business and a whole industry is developing around these particular stories. So the stories of individualism are being promoted, but behind it all is big business. And that is what is really driving the economy in the West. 
increasingly as there's money to be acquired in both mining and in the cattle industry, it's not going to be individuals with a limited amount of money, with a limited amount of capital, who are going to be doing the mining and the, and, and the cattle raising. It's going to be individuals who are going to work for big businesses that are based in the East, so like in New York City and Chicago. And it's going to be those big businesses in the East that are going to buy the large tracts of land in the West and employ people to work for them. So this is very much not part of the rugged individualist. These are employees working for a big business that's based in the East, but they are going to work in the West. So if you're able to look at your screen right now, if a, uh, a, a site was discovered and there that, that was filled with gold or silver or copper or something like that, instead of individuals coming over and trying to pan for gold or silver, businesses would come and buy the area and they would be able to afford to do something called hydraulic fracturing. Literally using high-powered hoses to draw water out of creeks or riverbeds or whatever and blast open parts of the earth where, where gold was thought to exist and then get the gold and the silver, etc. We tend to think of hydraulic fracturing or fracking, as we call it today, as an early 21st century thing. It actually goes back to the 19th century. And using this method, they could extract a whole bunch of gold or silver, copper, what have you. I mean, this is heavy industry and big business. This is not a rugged individualist panning for gold on their own. And then sadly, when this is done, it leads to another issue that defines the West in American history, which is environmental destruction. Because when big businesses would do this, uh, there would be a massive amount of erosion that would fill up riverbeds and creek beds, which would make farming downstream extraordinarily difficult. This is also a defining element of the West, both in the 19th century and today in the 21st century. A limited amount of fresh water, a limited fresh water supply. We humans need fresh water to drink and to grow crops. We need water to live. So if there's a limited amount of fresh water, then that should limit the number of people who live in the West. But throughout the course of American history, that has not limited the number of people who've come to the West. Huge cities like Las Vegas, Nevada, and Phoenix, Arizona have grown up out of a desert because of the American ability to either extract or import water from someplace else. Now, way back in the late 19th century, the very famous American explorer and scientist, John Wesley Powell. John Wesley Powell was the first American to lead an expedition along the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. He's also from Ohio, John Wesley Powell. John Wesley Powell, in his later life, was a scientist working for the Smithsonian Institution. And he said, and this is the first you know, white guy to sail down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, he predicted an environmental disaster was going to occur because there were too many people trying to settle the West. That was the late 19th century. It's still an issue that's important to environmentalists and politicians and to a lot of people in the West today. Okay. Now, when we think of the stories of the rugged individualists, the cowboys, the outlaws, 
who left the United States of America to go out to the territories of the West to try to make it on their own. There are some truly great stories. They are real stories. They are very much part of the American identity that exists today. And I feel like I would be a very poor history teacher if I didn't address at least a few of them. So here are some of the people from the United States who ventured into the West to help make it the Wild West in the late 19th century. Let's first talk about the James Gang. The James Gang were a group of train robbers and bank robbers. They were led by two brothers, Jesse James and Frank James, but really Jesse James because Frank James called it quits before it was all over. One of the best ways to understand the James Gang that came out of Missouri is to think of them as Confederate Avengers. Jesse James was a Confederate soldier who was disgusted by the fact that the Confederacy lost the Civil War. And the way he thought was, well, the Confederacy may have given up, but I am the spirit of the Confederacy. I'm not giving up. And he saw these new trains that are running through the West as part of this economic progress that was promoted by the Republican administration in the White House. And Jesse and Frank James and the James gang, they would rob these trains. And as they robbed the trains and the loot that was in the trains, they'd rob the passengers on the trains too. But here's what would happen. Here comes Jesse James walking through each train car. And if you were on this train, you'd see him walking through, wielding his gun, putting it in people's faces. But as he robbed individuals, he would ask them where they were from. And if it was clear that you were a white Southerner, he'd pass you by. But if you were from Columbus, Ohio, if you were from the North, his pistol would be pointed right in between your eyes and you'd have to empty your pockets and give him everything you got before he blew your brains across your seat. That was Jesse James and he was highly successful. He and his brother and the whole James gang. Once they had a big score, they would wisely disappear for a while. They once disappeared for several years into Tennessee bought property under alias names. The law couldn't find them. But Jesse James was addicted to the excitement. There is something, well, not that I would know personally, but I assume there's something exciting about robbing a bank, about robbing a train. And Jesse James was truly addicted to that excitement. And he'd eventually reform his gang and go back at it. Now, if you were part of the law enforcement in the West, and you were trying to catch Jesse James, how would you do it? This man can run, this man can shoot, this man can hide, this man's got a lot of money, how are you going to get him? If you were the governor of a territory out West, what would you do to ensure the safety of your people and to stop the terrorism of the James gang? What could you do? Well, one of the things that was done to stop Jesse James was a bounty went out, a reward for delivering the body of Jesse James, dead or alive. Now, one of these things that makes the bounties work is anybody, anybody can collect the money for turning in Jesse James, including members of the James gang. So if you were part of the James gang, you know, you're part of the excitement too, you rob trains, you rob people, you rob banks, you get rich, you're an outlaw, nobody can stop you, this is all really exciting. You're also pretty much a celebrity. But then you find out about this bounty. Now this bounty holds an allure. If you wanted to, you could kill Jesse James, 
turn them in, collect money, and you go free. That might be a nice way to end your career, rather than living the rest of your life as an outlaw. So Jesse James, in his final days in 1882, was never able to sleep very soundly at night because he knew that any member of his gang might turn against him and kill him and turn and collect the bounty. And that is exactly what happened. In the end, one of the members of the James gang, a guy by the name of, uh, by the name of Robert Ford, killed Jesse James. Robert Ford killed Jesse James when Jesse James was completely unawares. He shot him in the back of the head. Robert Ford and his brother was in on this too. Robert Ford then delivered the body to the governor of Missouri to claim his reward. When he did this, Robert Ford was accused of murder and placed on trial, found guilty, was sentenced to death by hanging, but the governor of Missouri granted him a pardon and let him go free. Robert Ford and his brother spent the rest of their days, which were not very long. He only lived for 10 more years, traveling around the West, various cities in the West, opening up saloons, doing performances to reenact the death of Jesse James. But a lot of people looked at Robert Ford as a coward, the man who killed Jesse James. And in the end, Robert Ford himself was killed when he was shot in the back of the head. Vengeance for vengeance. One of the famous wild stories of the Wild West. All right, now the James gang, and even Robert Ford, those were outlaws. What about the good guys of the West? Was there any guy out there who tried to make the West a civilized, decent place to live? Well, this is probably one of the most famous sheriffs in all of the Wild West. His name was Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp was born a poor boy in Illinois. He several times tried to run away from home to join the Civil War when he was just in his early teens. He wanted really bad to fight and be part of the action. Never made it though, he was captured several times, brought back home. When he was 17, he finally did run away and he goes out to the Wild West. And he wasn't a good guy from the start. He did enjoy being part of gangs and doing bad things. But then eventually he met a sheriff, a lawman, I'm not really calling them police officers yet, who really earned young Wyatt Earp's admiration and respect. And Wyatt Earp decides that he wants to dedicate himself to being a lawman, to being a sheriff. The story of Wyatt Earp in the Wild West is the story of a virtuous lawman. Wyatt Earp could have been a great bad guy. He could have been just like Jesse James, but he decided to use his skills with a gun and his physical strength and his charisma to enforce the peace. And in order to be a sheriff in the Wild West, in a place where might makes right, you really had to have all of these abilities. And I think very few individuals actually have these, these personal strengths of character. I mean, Wyatt Earp was tough, he was manly, he was quick with a gun, he also had the ability to talk to you in such a way to get you to back down and to step off. He was a very manly man. And he put these particular skills to use in Dodge City, Kansas, to make the city of Dodge City, Kansas a safe and civilized place as much as possible. There were always outlaws that wanted to shoot Wyatt Earp dead, to rob banks, to rob people, to terrorize Dodge City and then ride off into the sunset, but they never did. 
But this is also an exhausting lifestyle to be the sheriff of Dodge City. So in the end, Wyatt Earp decides, you know what, I'm done. He had been a sheriff fighting the bad guys for about 10 years. He was now in his early 30s. He felt like he wanted to settle down a little bit. And there was a silver strike in Arizona. And Wyatt Earp thought, this is the life for me. He and his brother and his wife, who was a former prostitute, they moved to Tombstone, Arizona to be part of the silver rush, to make their money, and to settle down. He moved to Tombstone in the year 1879, and pretty quickly the situation became apparent that there was a bunch of lawlessness in Tombstone. And I guess once you're a lawman, you're always a lawman. This sense that I must make sure that there is justice in this town surged up from within him. And he and his brother and another man, an old Confederate soldier himself called Doc Holliday, these men became the sheriffs of Tombstone, Arizona. And famously in Tombstone, Arizona, a couple years after their arrival in the year 1881, there was a major showdown, a gunfight between Wyatt Earp and the lawmen of Tombstone and a group of outlaws. And this famous gunfight, which only lasted a few seconds, was known as the gunfight at the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. Wyatt Earp, amazingly untouched by a bullet during the shootout at the OK Corral, but the bad guys died and this particular incident in the American Wild West has been the subject for multiple books and films. Wyatt Earp represents one of the good guys of the Wild West. The final story I want to tell about an individual in the Wild West in the late 19th century is the story of Billy the Kid. Now, I need to make full confession here. When I was a young teenage boy myself, I was obsessed and in love with the story of Billy the Kid. So I'll probably spend a little bit more time talking about him. And the whole reason why I loved Billy the Kid when I was a boy myself was because there were a pair of movies that came out when I was in high school called Young Guns and Young Guns 2, starring Emilio Estevez as Billy the Kid and a whole bunch of famous young actors in those films. And they were great action-adventure films. And for the most part, they were historically accurate. Now, certainly not 100%. I mean, there's a couple of big glaring historical errors, like at the end of the first movie, Billy the Kid shoots a man by the name of Lawrence Murphy. That never happened. But overwhelmingly, it's fairly accurate in terms of, well, fairly. I don't know. You can judge for yourself. I'll tell the story. If you're interested, watch the movies and see what you think. But they certainly were exciting. And I was a young, young freshman in high school when I watched the first movie and I was, I was pretty inspired by it. And then later on, I went and I read a book uh, called The Saga of Billy the Kid, which was written in the 1920s. It was one of the very first biographies written by him. And it was written by a newspaper man from Chicago by the name of Walter Noble Burns. And, no, and, and Burns uh, retired from being a, a newspaper man in Chicago, went to New Mexico to interview all of these old people who knew Billy the Kid, who, lived, who had died 50 years before. So all these people were old. Oh, but they all had stories to tell about Billy the Kid. And he collected these stories and he wrote the saga of Billy the Kid, which is a magnificently beautiful 
wonderfully eloquently written book. Now, there are historical inaccuracies with that book too, because some of the stories that were told weren't really totally true. But man, just like the movies, was it a fun book to read. So as a, so as a kid, I was really into the story of Billy the Kid. And then as I grew up and I became a history teacher, um, I felt, well, I, I really need to know the accurate story of Billy the Kid. Uh, and so I, I'll do my best here based upon research that I've done as an adult and the, and, the, and the books that I've read and the documentaries I've watched as an adult that are of more historically sound source to tell the story of Billy the Kid. It's, it's really no less dramatic, I think, than any of the fabricated stuff. So Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid was not born Billy the Kid, of course. He was born Henry McCarty, the son of two Irish immigrants in not the Wild West, but appropriately enough for this story of Western expansionism, he was born in New York City. But his parents were poor and Irish and they had no resources, so they, so they moved west. But life, moving less, but life moving west was extraordinarily hard. First, his dad died. His mom remarried. They settled in the New Mexico Territory. When they arrived in the New Mexico Territory, and Billy the Kid's story is tied in with the story of New Mexico, uh, his mom really encouraged him to get a good education. And he did. So later on in life, when he's an outlaw, he's actually one of the more eloquent and sophisticated outlaws because he knows how to read and write. But his mom died when he was only 14 years old. He was 14 years old on the cusp of manhood, and now he's destitute. And this really becomes the defining element of Billy the Kid. It's kind of sad for me personally. Billy the Kid, at his heart, is a teenage boy simply struggling to survive. He has absolutely no opportunities available to him. He turns to, to being a thief in order to survive. He steals money from laundries. He steals guns and horses from people. And by the way, stealing a horse is a capital crime. He can be executed for that. He was born Henry McCarty. That was his name. But when he becomes an outlaw, he gives himself a fake name, an alias, William H. Bonney. And then later on, he'll be identified as Billy the Kid. As a boy in his mid-teens, who is also a thief, he doesn't really spend a whole lot of time in one place, but rather is going to move around. And he seems to feel more at home sleeping underneath the stars. He gets antsy when he's indoors. Now, as much as I personally love the outdoors, I don't think I could live like Billy the Kid sleeping outdoors every night. I mean, there is a lot of rattlesnakes out in the New Mexico desert. But that's also part of the story of the wildness of Billy the Kid. He's free. He's struggling for survival. But he's also still a boy who just wants a home. And that's what gets the story of this vagabond, poor teenage boy who's really a nobody in American history at this point in time, all tangled up with the big money and the big politics of the Wild West. So in New Mexico, the big money that was to be had was found in ranching. So ranching, raising cattle on a free range on these absolutely huge cattle ranches, cattle ranches that are the size of an entire county in Ohio, breeding the cattle, then slaughtering the cattle and having them shipped 
to the to the to the to to the cities in the east, or just shipping them to the east, and they're slaughtered there most likely. I guess, I guess at this point in time in history, and then getting paid big bucks for that meat. It would have been very difficult in the late nineteenth century to be your own entrepreneurial cattle rancher going to to New Mexico or to Arizona and try to start your own cattle ranch because even at that point of time in history, there were cattle barons, individuals with a lot of land, with a lot of money, with a lot of cattle who really held the government of the New Mexico territory in the palm of their hands through through the power of bribery. And it would not be too difficult for one of these big name, powerful cattle barons to steal your cattle, kill your cowboys, uh, drive you out of business, and, and totally get away with that. So there were these cattle wars that occurred in the Wild West, in particular, you know, the New Mexico Territory and Arizona and elsewhere. But Billy the Kid found himself tangled up in one of these cattle wars. And here is how it happened. Billy the Kid is a teenage boy in the 1870s in the territory of New Mexico, struggling to get by, resorting to being a thief, and sometimes working legitimate jobs on cattle ranches. In the late 1870s, Billy the Kid steals some cattle. The cattle that he stole belonged to one of the more minor cattle ranchers named John Tunstall. And Billy the Kid was busted stealing this cattle. And so he was brought before John Tunstall. Now, Billy the Kid kid could have gotten into a lot of trouble because he was doing this. He could have really just been shot dead for doing this. But interestingly, John Tunstall was of a particular mindset. Tunstall saw a lot of these orphaned boys simply trying to survive. John Tunstall saw Billy the Kid for who he was. A boy simply trying to survive. A boy without parents, without resources. A boy who never got a fair shake in life. John Tunstall, instead of arresting or disciplining or killing Billy the Kid, says, how would you like to join my ranch? You can become one of my cowboys. Or as they were called on the Tunstall Ranch, the Regulators. Now, it's important to know at this point in time in history, there is no barbed wire fence yet. Barbed wire fence will completely change the cattle ranching industry. So until this you know, the barbed wire fence comes along, cattle largely roamed free, and it was up to the cowboys to kind of make sure that the cattle all stayed together. And you're talking about taking care of thousands of acres and then also the cattle could be moved across like from Texas all the way up to Colorado to be placed on a train. And so the cowboys would be necessary to do a cattle drive all the way up to Colorado. So to be a rancher, you needed to have your cowboys. And the cowboys would have to be very tough, very fit, very skilled with a lasso. I mean, they had to be cowboys, right? You know what a cowboy is. And Billy the Kid was taken under the wing of John Tunstall. Many of John Tunstall's regulators were orphaned boys, very similar to Billy the Kid. And John Tunstall took care of them, you know, not just by giving them a job and the opportunity for to, to live a legitimate lifestyle, or live a legitimate life, rather, 
to no longer be an outlaw, to have gainful employment and hope and opportunity for the future. But John Tunstall also took it upon himself to educate the boys that worked for him. So at night after dinner, they would sit down by the candlelight and they would take turns reading the newspaper. And a lot of these boys didn't know how to read yet. And Billy the Kid astounded all of them by reading newspaper articles really quickly and very eloquently. And so that's what John Tunstall did for these boys. He provided them with a livelihood, education, home, warmth. So you probably get a sense of what Billy the Kid and the other regulators, what they felt, how they felt about John Tunstall. They looked at him like a dad, and he was a dad for these boys. John Tunstall was arguably a very good man because he did care for these orphan boys. He was also a very daring entrepreneur within the story of New Mexico because he was a minor cattle rancher. And there was a much much bigger cattle ranch and a much more powerful cattle rancher in New Mexico named Lawrence Murphy. And Murphy saw Tunstall as a threat. And Murphy made the accusation that Tunstall had stolen his cattle. And Murphy's cattlemen, sometimes simply referred to as the Murphy men, they killed John Tunstall. Now, when John Tunstall is shot dead by Murphy's men, you can only imagine the emotional response of Billy the Kid and the other regulators who worked for Tunstall. They want vengeance. And so now this is when Billy the Kid becomes Billy the Kid. And this is part of an event in 1878, uh, New Mexico, called the Lincoln County War. Now, just a little bit about the politics behind this, because this will help us understand the structure of of the West in the late 19th century. New Mexico does not have enough people living in it yet to be a state. So it is a territory. Now, when there is an American territory, there is a governor of the territory. People do not vote for a governor in a territory, but rather the governor is appointed by the president of the United States of America, and that position is confirmed by the Senate. And then that governor has the administrative power to establish, essentially, a police force to govern the laws or to enforce the laws of the territory. And the governor of New Mexico had appointed a sheriff. The sheriff's name was Sheriff Brady. And Brady had been totally paid off by Murphy. So there's no way Brady's going to go after Murphy or the Murphy men to, to, to bring them to justice for the death of John Tunstall. So first, Billy the Kid and his regulators, they go after Brady. Then they go after the Murphy men using hit-and-run tactics in the New Mexico desert. And then the whole Lincoln County War culminates with the United States military being brought in by the governor of New Mexico to go after Billy the Kid and the regulators. And they caught them in the city of Lincoln, New Mexico, which is why this is called the Lincoln County War. Lincoln was the town that's the hub of Lincoln County. All right. So they they were actually in there visiting with the lawyer of John Tunstall. He was a good friend. He's also, uh, this, this particular lawyer was a very sophisticated man who was quite a gentleman and a pacifist who doesn't like war and doesn't believe in killing at all. And even though he too is significantly mourning the death of John Tunstall and is very upset by it, he's trying to combat this legally and does not support these 
teenage boys and their vigilante justice, but they're in his home at this time, and his home becomes completely surrounded by the United States military, which has a Gatlin gun, which is an early machine gun. They've got cannon and they're going to blow the hell out of this house and kill all the regulators inside. Now, the lawyer and his wife, they left, and the United States military is calling for the regulators to come out of this house, hands up, and the regulators have to decide what to do. Are they going to are they going to put their hands up, walk out, most likely get arrested, most likely be hung, or are they going to stand there and are they going to hold themselves up and fight? They decide, of course, that they're going to fight it out and there's going to be this massive shootout. And there was. Many of the regulators died. A few of them escape out of the back of their house, out of the back of the house, somehow with their life. They get on horses and they ride out into the New Mexico countryside where they're going to hide out for as long as they possibly can. Billy the Kid was, of course, one of the guys that made it out of, his, out of the house with his life. So, it's a very dramatic story, and it's actually the subject of the very first Young Guns movie back in the 19, late 1980s. Now, at the end of that movie, you see Billy the Kid sneaking back in the town to shoot Lawrence Murphy through the, through the head, and that never happened. Billy the Kid just simply disappeared off into the countryside. So once again, Billy the Kid finds himself back right where he started, a vigilante on the run from the law. He's wanted dead. And the poor guy, he's still a teenager, barely 19 years old. So how does Billy the Kid survive now? Well, he's quite adept at surviving alone in the desert of New Mexico. He knows how to steal. He knows how to take cattle and sell it. He also simply knows how to live off the land as well. But he's also a smart, educated guy. And he finds solace and comfort in communities that also have no love for these rich American cattle barons. And those are the ancient Spanish or Mexican cities that have been there since the 16th century. So I brought this up once before. Remember when English colonists were just barely starting to settle places like Massachusetts and Virginia in the early 17th century? 50 years before, there were already Spaniards settling what is today the American Southwest. So there are these old, old, old communities. In the 1840s, America, for the United, the United States of America, essentially stole this land from Mexico that creates a little bit, well, quite a bit of hostility between the United States and Mexico that lasts from the 19th century, from the 1840s, all the way through uh, the very beginning of World War One. And in fact, the Mexican-American War is fought over this. That's back in the 1840s. So by the time we get to the late 1870s, there are still these Spanish-speaking Mexican communities, and they do not like the wealthy American cattle barons who are showing up and effectively driving them off their land as well. Billy the Kid ingratiates himself to these old Mexican communities. He becomes fluent in Spanish. He embraces their culture. Now, how these Mexican communities looked upon the cowboys were the cowboys are filthy, dirty gringos. These Mexican communities, if you wanted to be part of them, you had to dress well, you had to be clean, you had to abide by fairly strict social standards. They were Catholic, they were very protective of their traditions. 
So it speaks a lot to Billy the Kid that he was able to ingratiate himself to these communities. He also, most, he also fell in love with a Mexican girl who lived in one of these Mexican communities. And in fact, this picture, if you're looking at the screen right now, of Billy the Kid is the only known photograph of Billy the Kid. Although I've seen a couple out there that are maybe Billy the Kid. This is the one that's accepted to be actually Billy the Kid. And this is a photograph that Billy the Kid had taken to give to his girlfriend, who was Mexican. And she lived a, a long life and she submitted, she turned this photograph in near the end of her life in the 20th century. And she said that this was Billy the Kid, but it was not a good photograph of Billy the Kid because she said in this particular photograph, he just looks very unkempt. And in fact, he was a very well-dressed, handsome, charming young man. Of course, this is coming from the woman who as a girl loved him from many decades before, but it's really only her testimony that we have about this particular photograph. I assume that it was, in, that it was within these Mexican communities that once again, Billy the Kid found a place that he could call home. But Billy the Kid is also a wanted man, He's a killer. He's an outlaw. Nowhere is safe for him. He continues to spend a lot of time on the run. And he probably became very acquainted with every rock, stream, and cactus in the New Mexico Territory. So in the late 1870s and early 1880s, the governor of New Mexico was a man by the name of Lou Wallace. And Wallace wanted to get rid of the annoyance of Billy the Kid have him arrested, thrown in jail, hanged, executed, whatever. So Lewis, or I'm sorry, Lou Wallace would place bounties on, on, on Billy the Kid's head. These bounties usually were around $500, which was great money at that point in time in history. And a couple of times Billy the Kid was caught and even once placed on trial and was sentenced to be hanged. And in absolutely every single one of these cases, Billy the Kid proved to be an escape artist. He was always able in some way, shape, or form able to break out of prison. And there are a wide variety of stories about how he made his escape. And I personally don't know what to believe because these escapes are just, they're legends in terms of how he got out. But suffice it to say, he escaped. And this drove, understandably, the authorities nuts. And today, this, of course, just adds to, to the mystique of the legend of Billy the Kid. And then Lou Wallace decided to finally get Billy the Kid by hiring one of, the, one of Billy the Kid's close friends to track him down. So Governor Wallace hired Pat Garrett. By the way, if you're looking at the screen here, Pat Garrett's name is misspelled. There should be two T's in his name, Pat Garrett. Pat Garrett was a tall, lanky man from rural Texas, who had traveled westward to New Mexico and was friends with Billy the Kid for a while. So he knew where Billy the Kid would hang out. He knew his haunts. He knew where he traveled around New Mexico. He knew Billy the Kid's friends. Pat Garrett knows Billy the Kid. So if anybody can catch Billy the, Billy the Kid, who knows where Billy the Kid is hiding, it's gonna be Pat Garrett. So now is when I may potentially deviate from being a good history teacher, and I might actually resort a little bit to legend here. My source book is 
the 1920s biography on Billy the Kid, The Saga of Billy the Kid by Walter Noble Burns. According to Burns, Pat Garrett actually captured Billy the Kid once, and if this story is true, I find it just quite delightful. He actually captured Billy the Kid in a small hovel, this little shack in rural New Mexico, and Billy the Kid knew it was Pat Garrett outside, and Pat Garrett actually drew him out by essentially starving him out. Billy the Kid was stuck in there, and eventually he runs out of food, if he even had any to begin with. And Pat Garrett one morning started brewing coffee and cooking bacon. So the Billy the Kid smelled the bacon and the coffee, and finally just was overcome with hunger and says, Pat, I'll give up if you give me coffee and bacon. And he did. And Billy the Kid was captured that one time, but sure enough, Billy the Kid escaped. And Pat Garrett realized going after him another time, I've got to kill him. There's no capturing Billy the Kid. And here's the story of how Pat Garrett eventually caught and killed Billy the Kid. And again, there might be a little bit of legend in this. So let me tell the story, and then I'll tell you what is absolutely true, what historians know. Okay. According to Walter Noble Burns' biography of Billy the Kid, Billy the Kid showed up on the ranch of a man by the name of Lucian Maxwell, spent some time talking to Maxwell, and then asked to stay on his property. Now, Lucian Maxwell's property is an absolutely huge property. This man owned 1.7 million acres making him one of the largest landowners in all of American history. Billy the Kid, of course, not going to stay indoors. He's going to live outside under the stars. But essentially, he wants to hide out on Maxwell's property. Maxwell says, that's fine. One night, Pat Garrett shows up onto the property of Lucian Maxwell. Maxwell invites Pat Garrett in, and they sit down in a darkened bedroom, no lights on, talking in secret about Billy the Kid. And then, for whatever reason, Billy the Kid walks into that room. Now, why did Billy the Kid show up in this bedroom at this particular moment? Did he know something was up? We don't know. But it's dark. They hadn't lit a candle or or a lamp or anything. It's dark in that room. Now, Pat Garrett and Lucy and Maxwell had been sitting in that room for a while, and their eyes had dilated so they could see a little bit more clearly in the dark. Billy the Kid, coming in from outside, even though it was dark outside, there was still the starlight and the moonlight, Billy the Kid's eyes hadn't adjusted when they walked in. When he walked in, Pat Garrett could see Billy the Kid a little bit better than Billy the Kid could see anything in that room. Now, Pat Garrett begins to reach for his gun, but he's got to be careful because as soon as he clicks his gun, Billy the Kid's going to hear that, and Pat Garrett knows that Billy the Kid can outdraw him, and that Pat Garrett will get sh- Pat Garrett knows he'll get shot dead, so he's got to be very careful. Billy the Kid, either hearing or sensing that somebody was in the room, says, Kienes, Kienes, Spanish for who's there? And Pat Garrett makes his move. He pulls his gun from his holster. And as he fires at Billy the Kid, he falls to the floor. So Pat Garrett, starting in a sitting position, pulls his gun, fires at Billy the Kid, falling to the floor at the same time. Billy the Kid pulls his gun, fires at where he thought Pat Garrett was, 
But Pat Garrett, knowing that Billy the Kid can outdraw him, has fallen to the floor. Pat Garrett fires over the head of Pat Garrett. I'm sorry, Billy the Kid fires over the head of Pat Garrett. Pat Garrett shot Billy the Kid twice. Billy the Kid falls down dead. Thus ending the life at age 21 of probably the most famous outlaw in American history. These stories of people like Jesse James, Wyatt Earp, Billy the Kid, they fascinated people in the late 19th century, and it gave Americans an image of the American West that would be immortalized for the rest of American history. But let's remember that most of the West is being filled up in the late 19th century by miners who are searching for gold, silver, copper, whatever. Many of them are escaping poverty in the East for a better life in the West. Most of them are not going to find it. What they are going to find, though, are towns filled with people who are willing to encourage their dreams and take their money. I've mentioned these towns before, towns like Tombstone, Tombstone Arizona, Seattle, Washington, Leadville, Colorado, and this town, Deadwood, South Dakota. Now, as the miners would show up, businesses would show up to support the miners. Grocers, people who would run a general store, bankers, lawyers, and saloons, saloons, saloons. All of these businesses needed the stories of people striking it rich so that more people would come to town. Sheriffs would be hired to do their very best to maintain some sense of justice and order. Guys like Wild Bill Hickok in Deadwood, South Dakota. Now, most of the people who came west were men, but women came too, but in far fewer numbers. Most of them came as part of a family. Even fewer migrated west independently. But women play an extraordinarily important role in the settling of the West. It's because it's the West, and it's because there is a severing from the culture and the tradition of the United States of America that these women, too, were also more free. Granted, it was extraordinarily dangerous to be anybody in the West, especially a woman. You were even more vulnerable, which is why many of the women who went West had to put aside any notion of being this delicate flower, this weak, submissive creature dependent upon a man, that potentially they could still be if they were in the East and in the United States. To be a woman in the West, you had to be tough, which is why we'll learn how women first got the right to vote in the West. And many people still argue today there is still a, a culture in the West of women being more tough and more free than they are in places in the East and even places like Ohio. Some women, although this was a minority of women, some women who went out West found a surefire way to make money, although it was a very dangerous profession, and that was prostitution. Now, I understand this is a controversial topic, but the story of prostitution is intertwined with the story of the settlement of the West. First of all, in the West, brothels became an established part of the culture. If you ever read the book East of Eden by John Steinbeck, one of the classics in American literature, this is a book about late 19th century Central California. And prostitution, while not necessarily being moral, is still a central part of the culture of the Salinas Valley that John Steinbeck writes about. Now, if you were a woman and you chose to engage in this profession, well, back then, just like, I, just like today, there were many drawbacks. You were very vulnerable to disease, violence, alcoholism, drug abuse. And then what I don't have on this screen is 
as socially acceptable as it became in many communities in the West, there are still going to be a great many people who look upon you with disrespect until you're going to experience some form of social isolation. Although that wasn't the case 100% of the time, and I'll give you some examples of that. Now, some positives of this were you had the opportunity to make a lot of money. Now, it wasn't that easy. Chances are you're going to have an employer, usually a madame, who looks after you, so to speak, who provides you with food and a place to stay and a place to quote-unquote conduct your business, but then you will owe her in response, or in return rather, and that return might have been significant. Also, if we can trust John Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, chances are you're not going to stay in the same place very long because sexually transmitted diseases are going to be being passed back and forth all the time. And so the girls of a brothel would be sent away after only being there for two weeks because that way, if any man contracted an STD, then he would come back to the brothel angry and that girl would be gone. She'd go off to another town or something like that. And so even though you had the opportunity to make a lot of money, it was still extraordinarily difficult. But if you could save some of your money and not spend it on alcohol or laudanum, which was an opiate, if you could save your money, you could potentially become an economically independent woman. And once you do that, once you achieve that, then you're off. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to remain in this lifestyle. And that's what some women did to become very very powerful. They built up their capital, then they went on to do their own entrepreneurial independent things. So there are several examples of this. In the New Mexico territory, there was a woman named Madame Millie who then ran her own brothel, and she used some of her money to pay for women in New Mexico to go on and get a college education. Uh, Up north in Colorado, there was a woman named Laura Evans, who was keenly aware of how vulnerable women were to male abuse. So she used her money to build a shelter for female survivors of domestic abuse, a place where if you were a woman and your husband was beating you, or if anybody was beating you, you could come for food and lodging and safety, one of the first in the country, developed by Laura Evans, a prostitute. And then in San Francisco, there was a woman named Diamond Jesse Haymond. And in 1906 in San Francisco, California, there was a massive earthquake that destroyed that city, that destroyed the livelihoods of many people. And Jesse Haymond organized relief funds to be provided for the destitute of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Some of these women achieved positions of power. And it's because of women like this And because of all the women who went out West who had to develop the survival skills necessary to survive in the West and became much more tough in general than their American counterparts in the East, women started achieving greater political equality in the Western United States than they did anywhere else. In the year 1869, Wyoming was a territory that became the first place in the United States of America where women had the right to vote. 21 years later, when Wyoming was applying for statehood in the year 1890, the Congress in Washington, D.C. refused to let Wyoming enter the Union of the United States of America until they eliminated female suffrage from their state constitution. In other words, 
the government in D.C. told the territory of Wyoming, if you want to be a state, women are not allowed to have the right to vote. To which the Wyoming legislature responded, we may stay out of the union a hundred years, but we will come in with our women. The federal government of the United States of America will not grant women the right to vote until the year 1920. We'll learn about the, more about the 19th Amendment in a future lecture. Before then, it was states that granted women the right to vote. Here is the list of the first nine states in the United States of America that grant women the right to vote. They are in order. Wyoming, Oregon, Washington, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Idaho, Kansas, California. All states from the West. Clearly, women too played a very important role in the Wild West of the late 19th century.